What's up, everybody? Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week we have a special episode for you. We are going to do an early proxy season review. We have a great roundtable discussion with our corporate governance team that is both enjoyable and informative. Anyway, thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. The proxy season is upon us, the time when the investment world can gather at their company's annual general meetings and directors of the company present this annual report on how things are going for the company. And also shareholders that have voting rights can vote on the shareholder proposals that are put to the company. Most do this online or by mail via a proxy and that's why it's called proxy season. So much of the shareholder proposals that are voted on address environmental or social matters such as climate risk, human rights, diversity, political spending, or data privacy. And the more traditional ones suggest changes to governance practices at the company or general shareholder rights. So 2020 last year was a difficult year for everyone. It was also a difficult year for companies because investors were paying way more attention to the environment and social issues as well were spilling into how companies are reacting to these problems and how they're actually being addressed in the boardroom. And the economy was also in shambles due to COVID-19 and there were volatile market conditions. And everything was done virtually, which basically had everyone freaking out. The virtual bit is now the modus operandi and no one really cares, but the enhanced investor scrutiny that is still on everyone's mind. So it's early proxy season this year, and we are going to have another episode later in the year that is sort of a retrospect on what went on during the 2021 proxy. But today, I want to convene a roundtable of our various corporate governance experts to discuss some of the more interesting trends we are seeing during this proxy season, though it is early. You're going to hear a lot of different voices, and and I'm going to try and be the guiding voice through it all and first we are going to talk about how climate change has remained the dominant environmental topic this year for companies according to series there has already been 136 climate related shareholder resolutions filed this year so far that is 12 less than were filed in all of 2020 and a lot of them have been on that old problem of greenhouse gas emissions but in addition to investors wanting companies to disclose more on their greenhouse gas emissions and for investors wanting the boards of companies to have a better handle on how much they're polluting and how to reduce that pollution. There's also a emerging movement to hold an annual advisory say on climate vote, which gives shareholders a chance to weigh in more heavily on a company's climate strategy. We're going to get into what that is and why it's important soon. But first, I wanted to talk about the old consistent problem of greenhouse gas emissions and how it's being handled during this proxy season. My colleague, Ora Toder, joined me to discuss about greenhouse gas emissions with regard to the airline manufacturing company, Airbus. So here's her saying her name. I'm going to cut that in for you. Um, hi, my name is Ora, and I'm a corporate governance analyst within the ESG ratings team. So I asked Ora to kind of tell me what her thoughts were about the early discussions on climate change for the 2021 proxy season. Um, we see many companies adopting company-wide climate pledges um, and actually uh, more companies 
companies, um, also linking their CEOs' uh, pay to uh, reaching these climate objectives. Um, and one example of, uh, of a company that has linked CEO pay to climate targets is Airbus. Um, the um, CEO and other executives, um, in, in starting with 2021, their annual bon- 10% of their annual bonus will be linked to um, uh, climate targets um, and will depend on whether the company can reduce CO2 emissions by uh, 3% year on year. Um, and the company said that uh, the, the climate target in pay um, is also aligned with the company-wide um, policy goal of um, reducing CO2 emissions by 40% by 2030. And I think it's important to note here that um, the annual bonus is only one component um, in the entire CEO pay package. Um, there are, of course, um, base salary and, and pension and long-term incentive plans uh, that uh, make up for uh, the largest portion of the, the CEO total pay. Um, and in the case of Airbus, uh, the long-term incentive plan is awarded and invests based on financial metrics only. Um, there are no climate targets in the long-term plan. Um, so that means that overall, less than 4% of the entire CEO pay package is linked to climate targets. Less than 4%. I mean, that's not a lot and it's not really based on anything long-term, but it's a start. And more companies may go down the CEO pay tied to climate road. And then we will have more tools to compare them when they do. We're going to have to explore that after the remaining annual general meetings happen. And that's going to be around June. But even though the enhanced investor scrutiny on climate is new, the way these discussions are being played out is old. It's focusing on how the board is dealing with it. Meaning the investors are keeping the board accountable and the board then keeps management accountable often with pay that new strategy i talked about that say on climate strategy moves the climate discussion from the board outward to shareholders it will give shareholders a chance to weigh in on the climate strategy in the same way that they weigh in on a pay proposal at a company so to learn more about this i called up my colleague florian summer and i want to play you a majority of our discussion in kind of raw form because I think it's interesting to hear in full. And it began with him telling me about how these say on pay votes are so interesting because they're actually backed by management. And he had some examples for me on what companies are pursuing them. And so, for example, we had, um, you know, as far as I can tell, the, the first company um, who who did this sort of on a big scale was uh, AENA. The, uh, the Spanish uh, airports company. Um, and they actually did this last year where, um, you know, after a, an activist campaign by, by UK investor TCI, um, they said, well, you know, we're going to submit our climate strategy to the, to the shareholder meeting, to the AGM. Um, and then also we're going to report each year on the progress um, and then have a separate vote at the AGM each year. So this is sort of the, the annual say on climate, if, if you will. Um, and so that's that's been interesting, and that was last year, and now this year you've seen sort of more and more companies um, do something like that, do something similar. Um, you had another Spanish company, um, Ferrovial, um, also have a, a say on climate vote. 
had companies in, in, in France, um, sort of Vinci, Total also agreed to do it, and, and other sort of high-profile European companies, Unilever and Nestle, for example. So, so it's really been sort of a, a growing number of companies. Um, and Well, there has been some big investors pushing back on this, right? There's the construction group Vinci that had uh, the first French company to submit its environmental action plan in the kind of say-on-pay vote. Uh, excuse me, say on climate vote, uh, because I got pressure from this activist investor called the Children's Investment Fund. And it kind of is getting a bit of controversy. Tell me about that. Well, so Vinci, they also had this sort of campaign by by uh, TCI to, to get them to hold this vote. Um, and initially, they actually didn't want to do it. Um, and then they agreed after after this campaign by by, by TCI. Um, and uh, and yeah, and so they, they, they had the vote and, and the vote passed. I mean, I think more than 98% uh, of, of shareholders actually voted for the climate strategy at the at the AGM. So sort of from that perspective, it was a it was a big uh, it was a big success. Um, but that's pretty significant, right? Ninety eight percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, almost unanimous backing, basically. You know. Um, so what happened? What went wrong? Well, I'm, I wouldn't say anything went wrong. It's just it's it's interesting how different investors um, view this sort of say on climate um, and specifically this sort of TCI campaign. Um, because yes, you know, ninety eight percent or more voted for this. Uh, but at the same time, you had some some big U.S. pension funds actually abstain on the vote, um, and more generally, sort of they're saying that well, this this campaign and you know this say on climate um, is 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 not really that great um, because at the end of the day, it's the board, it's the board of directors who who should be and who is responsible for the climate strategy and for implementing it. Um, and if you then start having separate votes at the AGM, it might you know distract from this sort of um, board responsibility. Um, so what they would like instead is just for investors to directly hold the board responsible. And, and sort of what that means is that you know if investors are unhappy with the way that the company and the way that the board is is implementing uh, climate transition plans, then these investors should consider voting against re-electing directors uh, to the board at, at the shareholder meeting. Okay, so what do you think about it? You know, all these different investors have their own agendas. Uh, we're objective voices here. Uh, what are your thoughts on the two parties saying that, well, we should be holding boards accountable versus no, it should be in the hands of the shareholders. They should have more power in saying uh, the company that they ostensibly own uh, are polluting too much, not having a good climate strategy. What, what's your take on that? If you look at a lot of these votes, um, I mean, yes, you know, they're high-profile votes and they're getting a lot of support um, on, on the climate strategies. But at the end of the day, typically these votes are uh, advisory, so non-binding. And that means that even if a company loses a vote, um, you know, that doesn't mean there would be any immediate changes to, to the climate strategy or to sort of environmental practices. And at the end of the day, it's still up to the board to, you know, do anything about that. Um, so this, this point about, okay, you know, if we really don't like what the company is doing about climate and the climate transition, um, maybe we should think about holding directors um, directly accountable. I, I think that's an interesting thought. Okay, so that's more or less what's going on with climate this proxy season so far. There's been talks around tying pay to greenhouse gas emissions and an emerging new tool called Say on Climate that is still in debate, but it's picking up steam, obviously. But in keeping with the ESG acronym, 
that this podcast lives by. Let's move from the E to the S and let's talk how social issues are being played out at the annual general meetings. Because in 2020, we saw some of the biggest protests around the world for racial equality spurred by the Black Lives Matter movement. And we saw moves in the corporate world around diversity. The NASDAQ Stock Exchange proposed a new rule that would require listed companies to disclose statistics in a prescribed matrix format on their actual diversity. There's also the rule in the U.S state of California that required board quotas based on racial and ethnic categories as well as sexual orientation. So I wanted to find out how these actions are now being played out at companies and in their proxy seasons uh, to keep the theme of this podcast, obviously. To do that, I asked my colleague Christina Milhoman, who conducts our board diversity research, and asked her to break down how equal diversity representation is playing out. And she said the situation could be bifurcated into four categories. I think we, we can divide them in like four big categories. So first and foremost, there are a lot of disclosures that focus on transparency. So these are the disclosures uh, calling companies to actually release their data, their diversity data, right? So the, the, I think these are usually the first step, right? So uh, not, no surprise there that there are a lot of proposals that are focused on that. Uh, U.S. companies are actually being uh, pressured to disclose the report that they actually have to provide to the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So this is a report they already have, right? So if you think about it, the legwork uh, to collect the data or, or to organize or anything else that the report may entails has already been done. So it's really about making this information available to, to investors and, and to all the stakeholders for that matter. All right, so situation number one, shareholders are asking companies in the U.S. to release what's called the EE01 document. If they did this, then investors would have standardized data on workforce diversity that they could then use to compare and contrast. How about situation number two? All right, so uh, the second category that we're seeing are proposals asking boards to actually assess the effectiveness of the policies and practice that the companies have put in place in the context of diversity, equity, and inclusion. That means investors want companies to not just belatedly address the issues of diversity by saying, we stand for inclusion everywhere. They want the sort of goal-driven metrics for inclusion that companies use for the factors that are on their balance sheets. So the third one uh, refers to representation. So these are the proposals calling for greater ethnic and racial minorities representation at board level and senior management positions. And the last one, so last but not least, uh, are proposals that are asking companies uh, to perform independent racial equity audits. So these are the proposals that actually go beyond the boundaries of the company in terms of assessing representation within the company. So these are the proposals that are aimed at assessing uh, the, how systemic racism and unconscious bias may have permeated through the company and actually impacted the company's products or services. So these audits uh, are intended to, to assess what was the, the potential role that the companies played in reinforcing existing racial injustices. Okay, so those are the proposals that are being put forth this proxy season. And according to Barron's, investors expect 
40 resolutions that are asking for companies to require disclosure of their EEO1 data. Christina's number two category, up from 22 last year. So that's more than 100% increase. That's good stuff. But it's not just proposals, Christina told me, that is being played out with diversity. It's also the threat of voting against or withholding votes when companies aren't making any progress on getting a more diverse board. Uh, basically, investors are saying, if you don't do this, we're going to vote against your board and we're going to withhold votes for your board. And let me give you an example of that in play, actually. I called up Harlan Tufford, who was another one of our governance gurus, and I wanted to talk to him about the proxy season and how Sam Pay has played out. But he decided, before he wanted to tell me about that, he wanted to discuss... Uh, this kind of inclusion without representation, or rather inclusion without power. And it speaks perfectly to the lack of board representation that we're seeing, even if companies are trying to kind of push more inclusionary practices. So CN Rail has been in the news a lot. It's in a bidding war uh, with its Canadian rival, CP Rail, over Kansas City Southern in the U.S. And so I've been paying a lot of attention to these companies. And last week... CN Rail put out an, an interesting announcement. It, it doesn't relate to the Kansas City offer, but it has some big picture implications that caught my attention anyway. Um, so on April 27th, CN announced the establishment of a new Indigenous Advisory Council. And so this is an independent body with a mandate to advise the board and the CEO on issues relevant to the company's relationship with the more than 200 Indigenous communities in which the company operates. The two co-chairs, Roberta Louise Jameson and the Honorable Murray Sinclair, are among Canada's most prominent Indigenous leaders, and in particular, uh, former Senator Sinclair chaired Canada's uh, landmark Truth and Reconciliation Commission on the residential schools. So for me, there's, there's little doubt that this, this council has the potential to be an important step for CN uh, in strengthening its, its ties with Indigenous communities. If this is effective, this could serve as a model for businesses uh, in strengthening uh, and, and building respectful, mutually beneficial relationships with Indigenous communities. And especially in Canada, that's something that's only going to become more important as the federal government is working to implement the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples uh, inside of Canadian law. Okay, that, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, and definitely something I, you, we should pay attention to. But uh, why, why bring this up right now? Because on the same day that the Advisory Council was announced... The company's shareholders elected CN's board of directors. This is the ultimate authority in CN's governance structure, right? And the 11-person board does not include any indigenous people. And if we look further at the company's 35-person executive management team, there are no executives uh, at CN who are indigenous. So what we have here is this new body within the CN governance framework that has the potential to be a positive influence on CN's decision-making around the issue of indigenous economic interests and indigenous rights. But this expertise has been brought on alongside the board and, and adjacent to management instead of being inside the board or inside management. CN's given these indigenous leaders a voice in the governance structure, but not a vote. And so the question is whether this model will be effective and whether it will be sufficient for land intensive businesses like CN. Yeah, I'm going to be interested to see how that plays out in a year or when there's a, a plan that might infringe on some indigenous rights and how those two things are going to play out. Um, if I could keep us, if I could get us back on track real quick, though, uh, have you been seeing anything interesting 
uh, with regards to CEO pay so far in the proxy season? Yeah, so I mean, it, it's still early days on, on the U.S. proxy season. But from what we've seen, I looked at a sample of uh, 139 meetings that have been completed mid-April, uh, looking at changes in vote results and things like that. And what we're seeing is, a, is an overall decrease in support for say on pay votes and a number of, of pretty significant year over year changes. Right. And the you know the most striking ones are cases like Starbucks, where the vote looks like it was driven by this massive discretionary award to the CEO. And uh, you know, cases like Amerisource Burgeon, which we talked about last week, um, or a couple of weeks ago. Um, so so I mean these ones are showing that that shareholders I guess they're showing a greater willingness to to push back on these issues, um, and and a, an overall kind of level of activism that might that that's that's higher than we've seen in past years, um, and it, it's something we're we're going to be looking at really closely as the the meetings keep coming out in the the coming weeks. The thing is, though, with all this stuff, and I'm going to kind of segue here, uh, with all this proxy season information we've been proliferating, it does require the investors to actually, you know, have voting rights to make all these things happen. And what's so unfortunate and I guess topical about Harlan's digression is that the First Nations in Canada got to come onto the team, but they didn't get a vote. Uh, And actually more companies, uh, when they go public, are issuing what are called dual class shares, i.e. a share class that gives the founders a lot of voting power and investors less voting power. With dual class shares, a founder can only own a couple of shares, but have a majority of the voting rights limiting the democratic nature of a public company. And so I wanted to figure out with all this proxy stuff that's going on, what's also been happening with dual class share structures. And to do that, I called up uh, the woman on our team that is an expert on dual-class shares, Nilafar Kuchimova, and I asked her what she's been seeing this proxy season with regards to voting rights, suppressing voting rights, lack of democracy, autocracy, all the stuff that comes with different classes of shares. So I think um, the governance risk associated with dual-class share structures becomes even more amplified during the proxy season, because we start seeing numerous shareholders, um, shareholder proposals being filed on a range of issues that are clearly of importance to shareholders, but only for then, only for uh, these shareholders, uh, for these shareholder proposals, then to be defeated due to the presence of controlling shareholders. So, in other words, a shareholder proposal filed at a company with a controlling shareholder can actually receive all of the minority shareholder support, but it would still fail just because the controlling shareholder would then use their voting power to defeat or reject the proposal. I think um, one very recent example of this and quite timely is Berkshire Hathaway, where Warren Buffett controls a little over 30%. um, And just last week, the Berkshire Hathaway board opposed two shareholder proposals at their AGM. I think the proposals had filed had uh, the proposals filed had asked for the company to report on their climate change efforts and on their diversity and inclusion, but you know they obviously failed. Um, so you know it can become quite frustrating for shareholders in the proxy season to see um, their proposals being defeated by these controlling founders and controlling shareholders, even if a majority of the other shareholders were in um, support of these proposals. 
By the way, that Berkshire Hathaway thing is big news. Warren Buffett voting against diversity and climate proposals. His reasoning, to give you kind of what everyone's been talking about for that, and actually his reasoning is the same reasoning a lot of people have for issuing dual-class shares, is that managers and companies and boards need room to pursue a long-term strategy for their companies. And shareholders might not be in it for the long haul like a company founder is. But as Nilofer told me, this also allows management to make poor decisions with minimal consequences and might allow companies to avoid some of the societal problems that they helped create, such as climate change. And that's all important because dual-class shares are likely going to play a more prominent role in this year's proxy season than ever before. It's just these dual-class share structures keep gaining this um, attention just because of like fairly recent IPOs of quite notable examples, such as Pinterest and Lyft. They um, both tech companies and both are quite similar, meaning that they have two classes of shares with one class affording one vote per share and the other affording 20 votes per share. And um, they both have sunset provisions, which actually isn't the case for a lot of the companies with dual class share structures. But basically, their sunset provision stipulates that um, the dual cost share structure would dismantle um, when the founders die. But, you know, um, the founders of both of these companies are in their mid-30s, around their mid-30s. So they can still potentially retain a long-lasting lock-on control for decades. All right, so that's the review. We kind of went through everything that we could find to discuss about this year's proxy season. There's going to be a lot more coming on this. Uh, Rick Marshall is going to join us later in the year to kind of talk about what's really changed in this proxy season. We just need more data on that, and we need to figure out what's going on. Um, so hopefully you learned a lot from this. Stay tuned for more updates. We actually have a prospectus podcast next week that Rick Marshall is also going to be talking on, and he's going to be kind of giving an overview as well of what's going on in the proxy season, because for us, uh, this is a big deal. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or produ product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.